We're discussing articles on mental health and wellness with clinical psychologist, Dr. Joelle Lowe. First one uh, talks about the impact of divorce on mental health. Yep. Now I'm thinking if this divorce was mutual and there was no more love between the couple, mm. let's say, will it, will it still affect the mental health of the individuals negatively? I think yes, because like, okay, love aside, la, obviously love is a big factor in any relationship, la, you know, but along with something as big as a marriage or union between two people, there's also a lot of other social implications, right? Like your status, your, your responsibility to family members, the, 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 the roles that you have in your different families and all that, right? And also society at large, right? I mean, you're going from, a, from being married to not being married. And when people start asking why, for example, there's also the guilt, shame, grief, that kind of thing as well. So I think that definitely will affect the, the individuals negatively uh, in a lot of different ways. But that being said, it's not all the cases. Though. There are some instances where I think where it should be quite beneficial, especially if the relationship was a very negative one or but that perhaps even abusive one, right? So it really depends. But I think there will be very long-lasting impacts after the divorce, definitely. Now, should divorce ever be an option for a married couple? Or should they explore other uh, avenues before resorting to divorce? To work it through, right? Yeah. yeah. I think it should be a big glass in case of emergency kind of option, right? I think um, as much as possible, explore whatever uh, options or opportunities that you guys might have, be it um, religious advice, for example, religious teachings, or even uh, couples therapy, marriage therapy, that kind of thing, and try everything that you can first before you consider divorce. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, as much as possible, we want to preserve uh, relationships, preserve uh, a, a marriage life as much as we can, right? But ultimately, we also have to accept the fact that sometimes being together is going to be more detrimental to the two individuals, right? So it might be a better decision anyways. So it never it should never not be an option. It should be, but it should be the last option, the absolute last one you can should consider. But uh, is there really anything, because it says here, mutual divorce. Is it really ever mutual? Or is one one party always more feeling more hurt in the, in the divorce yeah. or the yeah. breakup? I think practically speaking, I think you're probably right, JD, because I think there's always going to be someone who gives up first or who says, has chosen the towel first line that turns that, right? And then once that's said out loud, it becomes the new reality that the couple has to face and contend with. And then they both make a decision based on that reality. So I think you're right. Practically speaking, I don't think there's ever going to be mutual, especially at the beginning. But it might come to a point where after a while, after discussions and, and, and the therapy, for example, or whatever you like in that terms, right? Then they come to a mutual decision that says, yeah, I think this is the best choice for us and I think we should leave together like that sense. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Let's move on to our next one, uh, next article. See, doctor, we've spoken at length about how this whole pandemic affects us mm. and the frontliners. But how about the teenagers and the children, like how will this experience actually change their mental health in the long run? Yeah, I think this depends on the age of the child, right? So if you're talking like really young kids, like, like my kids, for example, they're, all, they're both under the age of five. I think for them, their experiences of this lockdown really depends on what their parents expose them to or make available to them in that sense. If you very hyper anxious parents, right? Who make such big that they say, you know what, you can't go out, you might, you might catch the illness and then you might die and things like that. So it's all doom and gloom, very catastrophic kind of things. Then I think naturally you'll imbue that kind of anxiety in the kids, right? 
But if you're more um, neutral about it, even positive about it, if you can make this whole lockdown into a little adventure or a little uh, project that the kids can, can do while they're in lockdown, right? then I think it's going to be a much more functional experience for them, for really young kids. For teenagers, the older kids, I think their experience is a bit different. Um, I think during our teenage years, that's when we're trying to socialize as much as we can, interact with people as much as we can. And we've all been through high school. We know that you know high school is a time where we are, it's like 40% studying, 60% socializing with friends and Oh, no, not me. 100% was devoted to studies, Joel. <laughs> I can see that, JD. We can see that. <laughs> um, and I think because of this lockdown, you're going to severely limit their ability to do so, right? And it's going to drive something that's just a bit mm, cuckoo like in that sense, right? I think having FaceTime, WhatsApp and all that, that definitely, definitely helps. But at the same time, it's not the same. Right? I think the physical connection with peers are gonna, is going to trump that any time of the day, right? So for that population, the teenagers and all that, I think that might have an impact on their social relationships and their mental health in the long run. Especially when there's a situation where they might feel like isolated or alienated from their friends because they can't connect. Let's say they've got bad internet at home or no internet at home for that matter, right? Um, and that can be quite damaging to them in the long run, yeah. A psychologist in this article actually likened this pandemic to a war. Mm. So I'm just thinking how different will our children live or, you know, after mm. this war? Will it be uh, very much different? Like we're all talking about this new normal for everyone yeah, after yeah. This, this whole pandemic. I think it definitely will be different. And not just for the kids, actually. I think it's, it's across the board, right? Because now this has hampered our psyche or lingo, right? We're going to be doing things like, you know, do I really want to shake your hand? Um, can I just bow or, or you know, do a, a gesture fist instead bump. of a yeah, fist bump or a leg bump even, bump. right? <clears throat> yeah. So I think it's going to affect all of us. Again, I say it like, depends on how we narrate this entire experience to our children, especially the young ones. If it's all doom and gloom, then naturally they're going to grow up a bit more pessimistic, anxious and all that. Um, I think for the teenagers, they will have their own reality and their own narrative about the situation. And I won't be surprised if more often than not, this narrative is going to be evolved around the kinds of relationships that they had during this entire lockdown, in that sense. Because teenagers, you think about it, they're quite... Um, and then not all, but a lot of teenagers, they're quite insulated from the effects of it. They don't have to go out grocery shopping. They don't have to worry about income. Most, most like, not all, right? So their, their experiences of it is more based on like a school, social kind of thing. I think that's the kind of experiences that they would have. And that's how things will change. Right? That's, that's actually, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo actually just recently said, because his family is affected by this, and then he actually yeah. had a quote that said, that this pandemic, regardless of how horrible it is, is actually a great reality check for the young mm -hmm. people because um, they've been so pampered before. Yeah. And not since the not since World War Two have they actually had to do, go through something so harsh. Yeah. Yeah. He said that this will make them stronger. Will it though, or will it scar them? I think with any kind of uh, traumatic, negative, uh, difficult experiences, um, it's um, it's a it's like fire, right? Fire will burn some things. Fire will make some things into like hard hard as steel, right? And it really depends on who is experiencing it, right? So if someone who's naturally a bit more, um, so self-esteem is a bit lower, for example, a bit more anxious typically, you give them this kind of situation, it's only going to enhance that like, potentially, like, right? But some for other people, you know, they're going to bounce back and say, hey, you know, I didn't have to go to school. I didn't go shopping. I didn't do, do X, Y, Z that I used to do last time or I had to do last time and I'm perfectly okay. So why don't I keep doing it, right? So I think that's a really a case-to-case person, person kind of scenario. Best case scenario is like what you said, they're going to be more resilient, they're going to be stronger for it. And that's what we can hope for in the long run. All right. 
Next article, it's also um, about children. It's about parental mental illness as a risk factor for injuries uh, among offsprings, particularly during the first year of the child's life. And the risk is slightly higher for common mental disorders compared to more serious conditions. So mm-hmm. common mental disorders would be like depression, anxiety, anxiety yep. things like that. Yeah. Based on this research, uh, children of parents who have a mental illness are more prone to injuries. So is there any truth? Mm-hmm. To this statement, Doc? Uh, I got to admit, I haven't read the research that this article was based on. So I, I, I went in and read the article after that, right? And I think it's actually really, really quite interesting, right? Um, and given what the, the, uh, the author is writing about, I think that it's actually quite true, right? And the interesting distinction that they make here is the common mental disorders compared to more serious conditions. And I have a feeling, again, this is a feeling, I haven't read the research before, right? That this is happening because the more common mental disorders like depression, anxiety, that flies under the radar quite often, right? So people have it, but not everyone acknowledges it, does anything about it, or people know, like friends and family notice it in that sense, right? And when that happens, when I'm just really depressed and I'm, I'm alone in this battle and no one else knows about it, right? And I've got kids. The chances of me either neglecting or being preoccupied with my own thoughts, my own difficulties is going to be higher. So naturally, I think that's why more accidents happen as well. I think the article also touches that this is true up to the point of the kids are age 10 or something like that. Mm. And I think up to that age, kids do still need a lot of supervision and guidance from their caregivers, right? For those of us with the more serious mental conditions, I think this is less of an issue because by that point, we have gotten uh, support and help and medical attention and uh, family members to come in and help out and things like that. So I think they are kind of substitute parents or caregivers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it kind of mitigates that uh, injury problem a bit more in that sense. But I thought this was a fascinating article. Actually, I never thought about it that way. It makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Then if, if that is the case, can we safely say that most parents who actually abuse their child or hurt their child suffer mm. from some kind of mental disorders? Uh, this is a really tough question to answer, right? Because there is some element of uh, truth in the sense that there are some people with mental disorders who would be more prone to violence and abusive behaviors, mm. right? But to say that all of them do it, it's not the case as well, right? And you also have abusers who have no history of mental health disorders in themselves or the family who actually lash out at their kids, right? So I don't, I can't say with any certainty like that you have to have a mental disorder, therefore you abuse your kids. I don't think it works that way, like, right? But uh, what I would say is that more often than not, you see abusers with a history of violence or abuse or neglect themselves, right? Mm. So they have some history or some experience that are similar to what they are dishing out right now that would have caused them to fall back into those kind of patterns. I think that's more uh, more umbrella kind of reasoning rather than the mental health disorder that they have. Okay. So that's not considered like if it's something that they've learned growing up, mm. that's not considered a mm. mental disorder? No, I mean, it can, it can, right? But it's, uh, it's, not, it's not 100% it's going to happen or manifest that way in life, right? Like, I mean, if you've been abused as a child, for example, it's very likely or it is likely, it can happen uh, that you become anxious in the, in the future or become a depressed person in the future. It yeah. is possible. But there are also people who don't, right? And in those cases, when they become abusive, and when you ask them, they do have that kind of um, experiences like growing up. Having said that, I think, Belinda, you say something that's quite um, true as well. It's not uh, it it it's not predictive, right? It's yeah. just correlationary, like, mm. in that sense. Like, it doesn't mean that if you've been abused as a child, you will definitely become abused in the next yeah. in your in when you grow up, because it doesn't happen all the time. You do see some people who have been abused; they're hyper vigilant against abuse, 
right? And it never happens. Right? So it's not correl- it's not causational, it's correlational. Right? Uh, so it's similar to if you have parents who smoke, it doesn't necessarily mean you smoke. Or if you yeah. play violent video games, you're going to be a violent person. It doesn't exactly. Actually- Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There is some correlation, but I wouldn't say it's causational. Yeah. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Next one. This is interesting because it, it, it's about, I have felt this because there's some mm. form of perfectionism in myself <laughs> as well. And I'm sure JD has also. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm already perfect. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, you know, striving to measure up to the examples that social media has set up for us, you know, can right. take further toll on our mental health. When yeah. projects yeah. fail, especially like cooking projects and whatnot, you know, fail because you don't have the resources needed or you don't have the interest in it, you know. Perfectionism right. can make you more vulnerable to poor well-being, especially during this lockdown. Because mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of my friends posting up perfect pictures of their meals, you know, <laughs> they've been cooking up a storm. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you compare like, I haven't done anything for my children. <laughs> and you feel so bad, right? Right, right, right. So is this, is perfectionism detrimental to our mental health? A hundred percent, a hundred and one percent, right? Because there, there's no such thing as perfect, right? No matter how perfect you are and you think you are, right? You, chances are you're going to find five people who are better than you, right? So when is it ever going to end? It's never going to be this never-ending chase or race, rat race that you're never going to win, right? And I think that this is actually one of the biggest, uh, most common things that we work, work on in the therapy room as well. So clients come in thinking that, you know, I have to be perfect. I should be perfect. You know, I have to be the perfect son, the best husband, the best wife, the best child or whatever. Right? And every, any, any indication, any slight notion that perhaps I'm not as perfect as I should be or am or can be, my work comes thumbing down. Right? And I think that's really, really bad for anyone's mental health. Right? And if you think about it, if I ask you guys, right, um, can you think of anyone that's perfect? Right? Chances are no, right? Even Sister Teresa uh, Gandhi had his own detractors, right? There's no such thing as perfect. There never is a perfect being in that sense, like God, God aside. So I think this is definitely detrimental. And if you are that kind, that way inclined, I think it's important for you to reflect on that and ask yourself, really, like, is there such thing as being perfect? And do I want to be perfect for that matter? Like? But it's not as easy as saying that, like, oh, I don't want to be perfect. Like, because I never thought of myself as perfect and I don't <laughs> want to be perfect. But it's just that mm-hmm. when you see social media, you know, yeah, and pressure, people post right? up only the good bits, all the yeah, perfect yeah. bits of their life, mm-hmm. you feel like you, you're missing out or you're lacking, yeah, yeah. you yeah, know? Yeah. But you, so you, how, you can, know? how can perfectionists actually drop their need yeah. to be perfect or to compare to other right. people? So I think you nailed it on this, especially those of us who want to be perfect because of the social media posts that you see on Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that, right? Exactly like what you said, they post up their successes, right? Yeah. For every one perfect Dalgona coffee you have, they probably have 10 others which were complete failures, right? <laughs> For every one perfect, you know, wonderfully uh, sculpted cake that they have, they probably have nine others which was in the dumps or, you know, someone else is eating it right now, right? And I think that's what we have to remind ourselves, especially when we are influenced by social media, that Social media is the place where we, ce- we celebrate things. It's we celebrate perfection. We celebrate the successes that we have, right? How many posts do you see on Instagram or Facebook about our failures, about our struggles and things like that? You do, but it's very, very rare, right? And even if it's rare, there, so we don't pay as much attention more often than not, yeah? Unless you're a Schadenfreude uh, seeker, like, then different story, like you're looking for those kind of stories, like, right? Uh, but generally speaking, I think one really good way to help you drop that perfectionism is to just really uh, contemplate and ask yourself, like, 
yes, I want to be perfect, but before that, why do I want to be perfect? What's so important? Uh, why is it so important to me that I am perfect, right? And I think when you can start asking yourself that really hard question, that really uh, chips away at that need to be perfect. And that's uh, a, a kind of a introspective kind of a journey that you can take on yourself to help you manage that perfectionism. Another good way is to um, use your kids or your best friend uh, to, to help you uh, manage that, those kind of thoughts, right? For example, um, let's say you're, you want to be perfect in terms of the cooking that you do, right? Ask all this question. If I, my kids were cooking for me, would I demand perfection from them, right? And the answer is no, then why is it that you have to be perfect, right? So that's one good way to try and change the perspectives a little bit, right? And make it a bit gentler and kinder to yourself. Like that sense, right? Is there some kind of, in a person, I mean, a certain character trait that, that is it more about men or is it more women that gets into this mode where they want to be more perfect or some who um, are more affected by what's happening on social media? I don't know if it's a gender thing. I don't think so. At least not from my knowledge. Like I could be wrong, right? But there is a personality <laughs> type that we call uh, OCPD, Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder. And these are the perfectionists of the world. Like, you know how we, we in, in popular culture, we say, oh, this person is really OCD because everything's in place. They go on a holiday, like every minute is accounted for, that kind of thing. We say they're OCD. But it's actually not. It's not OCD. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's not OCD, right? It's OCPD. It's a personality trait. Right. right? So these are people exactly like you and uh, Bella, right, Jenny? You guys have everything in order, everything in place, you know, even your, your nicely groomed uh, manscaping face there, I think that's all perfectly planned out, for example. It's all measured out, right? And it's because of your personality. That's what you pray for. That's what you desire. It's like perfection. Like I want things to be perfect, all right? So it's more personality trait like, in that sense. Like. People need to watch more bloopers on TV. That that, <laughs> that shows right? the whole other side of what all these people are like. No, but it's I feel like yeah, yeah. what you said just then, Joel, um, struck uh-huh. me because I actually demand quite a lot of uh, perfectionism from my daughter as well. Okay. 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 Which which I find very quite um, quite detrimental to her mental health because <laughs> right now she's very scared to do anything. Right. If she knows right. she's not going to succeed. Yep. 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 So, so I think very if, difficult. She doesn't want to try because yeah. uh, if she's gonna lose, she's not gonna try. You know. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So I think if if it, if you're up for it, Label, start working with her to try to to fail with her. I think that's a really good way to to like model that kind of behavior that we want to do. That it's okay to fail. We obviously strive to do our best, but if you fail, so be it. Like, we try and never be it. Like, that's yeah. yeah. I remember be, feeling feeling very disappointed when she didn't win anything <laughs> during when when she went for her competition, and I think. Right. Um, I was actually quite disappointed that di- she didn't feel that disappointment. <laughs> right, right, right. No, yeah. I guess you maybe like transferring some of that perfectionism to your daughter. I guess, I guess, yeah. 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 But yeah. she's still okay. No. Yeah, yeah. Fail so with her, usually it's a good way to, to, to work around that. Fail yeah. with her, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of what, what kind of experience we can fail together. <laughs> Baking? Baking huh? is a good way. Baking? Mm. Yeah. I don't want to waste the flour. <laughs> oh God, my God. I think JD, you got to like move in with Belle for a couple of weeks, right? I think that would be the help of No, but yeah, she, he is OCD himself. He labels oh, yeah? everything oh, really? like a mile long. <laughs> <laughs> that is true though. Yeah, I like, I like labeling stuff properly. Yeah. But I don't, I don't project it because I understand it's not, not everybody's like me. Yep, yep. So I know I have a, for me, I look at it as a disorder. But most people don't see it as a disorder. Though. I noticed, right, like, right. you know, what's wrong with striving for perfection? You want to be as perfect as you can be, man. But at yeah. some point, 
you get depressed yeah. and you don't yeah. hit it, right? Yeah, yeah. I think intentionality matters a lot as well. You wanting to be perfect because you want to versus you wanting to be perfect because you have to. It's yeah. Semantical, it's semantics, but it's a big difference, right? And that can be quite detrimental to people as well if they have to be perfect rather than they want to be perfect. Thankfully, I'm already perfect, so it's okay. Next question. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> okay, our final article. Um, it's, it's quite interesting because the headline says, first, take a shower. How to protect mm-hmm. your mental health when you've lost your job. So mm. I guess in this um, uncertain times, a lot of people have lost their jobs. Yep. Um, and are probably feeling a bit down because they've sort of suddenly lost their sense of direction because mm-hmm. job is everything to, yep. to most adults, right? Having a job yep. and so they uh, need taking a care of their family. So how, how does a shower actually help it's with like, your mental health, especially if you've lost your job? It's like a Malaysian thing, you money bungo after something bad happens to you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> um, I think the shower it falls back to the most fundamental self care that we do for ourselves, like you know, about showering, brushing our teeth, things like that, right? And something really massive and something really bad happens to us. Big time. It it like like what you said, Ladal. It we work is such a big part of our lives that when we lose it, we we crumble, right? Because that that's it. I don't know what else to do in my life. Mm. So. Doing, going back to the basics, like the fundamentals of taking care of ourselves, like going for a shower, you know, brushing our teeth, making sure our hair is combed, uh, putting on uh, decent clothes, not just pajamas all day long. And what I think what that does, it, it jumpstarts our ability to live a normal life again like, in that sense. Like, right? We go back to basics and we go back on the ground up in that sense, right? So it's not just shower, but things we take for granted, like eating well, sleeping well, you know, communicating with family and loved ones. Going back to those kind of basics will help us re- get in touch with our roots again, I think, and help us remind ourselves like this is what we need to do to stay okay, to be all right about things like that sense, right? So I think that's how a shower can be very helpful. It's like sort of keeping a routine as well, even though yeah. Um, yeah. you don't feel it like it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, And I think it's, it's, it's a spillover as well. The more you take care of yourselves, the more okay you are. Then when it's time to jump back on the bandwagon again, it's not that big a uh, gap, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're already doing all these things anyway. Yeah. Right, so it's more about instead of being so reactive to the bad things that are happening around you, be proactive and take control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good way to look at it as well, right? Instead of uh, saying, I've lost all control, I've lost my income and my, my livelihood and my identity, right? I, instead of losing more control, I'll take back more control, right? And that's a really good way to come balance things out a bit as well. So what should we do if we have lost our job? Like, how can we come back from such yeah. a devastating circumstances, especially if it is what has defined us for... Mm the past 10 or 20 years, you know? Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So like the article said, I think take a shower. I think going back to the fundamentals, the basics is really good first starting step, right? For the first couple of weeks or so. Just to make sure that you are functional. So I, I've, I've spoken about this before, uh, making sure that you're functioning both socially and also occupationally, like in that sense, like being able to interact with your peers, your family members, um, sit down, read, do some work, submit applications online, things like that, right? So making sure we're as functional as possible is a really good way to start. Second one is to take stock of things. You know, I think in every loss that you experience, you're going to lose some things. And, and as strange as it sounds, you're going to gain some things as well, right? You lose a job that you have a 10 years, maybe working as a I don't know, radio producer, for example, and you're working crazy hours, you have so much pressure. And so, yeah, you've lost your job and you know, you gain back a lot of time, a lot of uh, peace of mind, right? a lot of uh, tranquility, even, I mean, so to speak. Right? How can you then use that or leverage on that to, to, to take care of yourself a bit better and find something that's more aligned to what you want right now? 
because the you who got the job 10 years ago might not be who you are right now and that job might not be suited to what you need right now so I guess what I'm saying is that especially during this MCO lockdown period if you lost the job I think it's a really good time obviously we need to take care of the fundamentals like making sure we have some income take care of the family some enough to put food on the table and all that but once that's done maybe it's a good time for us to sit and reflect and see what else can we do from uh, from here on out, right? Is, do we want to go back to the same kind of rat race or do we want something different from ourselves? So it might be a good way to 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 find a new new way of being, in that sense, like a new a new you. Like. So this is just to reassess your life. This does this apply to people? It's not just losing your job. What if you lost your passion for your? They were yeah. gonna keep you in the job anyway, and yeah. then you just lost your passion for it, and then you just do want to do it anymore. Yeah. And then yeah. I'm like, oh my god, I don't know what I want to do now. Yeah. yeah. Will but, this apply as well? I think so. And especially now because we are locked down and we can't go to back to the office, right? Um, even though we're doing the same kind of amount of work, but the intensity of it is going to drop because instead of saving eight hours to do something, we've got the whole day to do it, right? Yeah. And I think when that happens, JD, you're right, because then we start entertaining this kind of thoughts about, is it really for me? Do I really want this kind of job? And I, do I want to keep grinding like this forever? Yeah. And I think even that kind of situation, you might want to take stock and think about, okay, what can I do or what, what should I do to get what I want? Right, and that could be definitely a conversation you can have with yourself. Self-reflection at this yeah. point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah. You have to asking the all the difficult questions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> correct, correct. All right, that's all. Thank you hey, so much, Doctor nice Joel. Thanks for having me, guys.